This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I am delighted and proud to introduce him as Academy Award winner. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to the winner. It's a tie. And any little girl who's who's practicing their speech on the telly, you never know. Mom, I just want an Oscar. I am Katie Rich. I'm back, uh, and I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. And David Canfield. Hello. We're truly having summer experience here. Where I come back, Rebecca's gone on vacation. Um, we're not, we're not living that yacht life uh, like Bob Iger, but uh, we're we're here and there. But we're back together. We're gonna look check back in on the strike. Um, we're kind of never not talking about the strike, including in last week's episode and what has changed and uh, what hasn't changed as Emmy voting gets ready to begin. Still, um, we're gonna look at some new releases that are still out there, even if uh, the actors can't necessarily talk about it. And we're kicking off our August book club, one of my favorite things that we do all year. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about David Grant's Killers of the Flower Moon, which you have probably heard is about to be a movie directed by Martin Scorsese. So let's jump into the strike update. Um, You guys talked about the festival lineups on last week's episode and how they were kind of, it was a relief to see that they seemed largely unchanged and unaffected by the strike, save a few major things like challengers. Um, We haven't learned a whole lot since then. I think the news broke that Bradley Cooper will not go to Venice on behalf of Maestro, which is something that we kind of suspected. Um, The rumors that movies are going to move out of the fall continue. Our colleague Anthony Bresnikan wrote a piece kind of capturing the general sentiment that a bunch of dominoes might fall. But when I was reading that, kind of the the between-the-line sentiment seemed to be big movies like Dune or The Color Purple, or no one's mentioned Wonka, but that's kind of another one I've been looking at. Those seem like they could be in trouble. But our festival movies, our Oscar-y movies, those might stay still. Am I being overly optimistic there? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think that part of the reason for that is you can't move an Oscar movie into the spring if you want it to win Oscars. I mean, you, you can have spring <laughs> movies can win Oscars, like everything, everywhere, all at once, for example. Sure. But by and large, you'd have to literally redate it a year later. And mm-hmm. I think for something like Challengers, which wasn't quite aiming for that, I don't think, that can be a spring release, no problem. Wonka can be shot into space and, you know, whatever, <laughs> who cares? Um, but like, you know, an Oscar movie, a maestro or whatever else, that's tricky because then you're bumping into all the Oscar hopefuls for the following year. And, mm-hmm. and you know, th- that that's a tighter thing to figure out. So I, I think you're right, Katie. Yeah, we actually don't have any evidence right now that an Oscar title is sitting this season out. The other one that moved was Drive Away Dolls, which is the Ethan Cohen film. But it's more of a kind of raunchy road comedy that didn't seem like it was going on that path either. That's with Focus. But if you look at what Searchlight did with Poor Things, you know, they had a early September release that was, you know, pretty untenable for the current situation, especially since it's a weird Yorgos Lanthimos film top line by a major star. You know, the campaign for that is very clear. Um, they moved that movie to December, uh, but they kept the Venice premiere slot. And uh, I, I think that's the best you can do for a movie like that, um, which is hoping to have a long life this fall. But to Richard's point, Yeah, it doesn't really have another avenue to explore uh, unless you delay it a full year, which causes a whole bunch of other problems, as we've already learned uh, in the cycle of COVID. So it's, yeah, I think this is basically the slate we're going to get. I I don't think that these festivals, festival premieres are are intended to, you know, indicate a wait and see approach. I think they, for the most part, show that the studios are ready to go. Yeah. Yeah. But, David, as you've been telling me, we are sensing the anxiety of the people who have to actually run these campaigns because, you know, there is light at the end of the tunnel on the strike that we heard that the 
AMPTP and WGA might resume negotiations. Um, but for now, we're kind of in this holding period. And so saying, yes, we're still opening Killers of the Flower Moon in October is not the same as we have an easy path to promoting this for an awards campaign. That anxiety is still there, right? Oh, I mean, 100%. If, if you, <laughs> well, I mean, like, let's say, let's say Netflix is really high on Maestro, for example. You don't have anyone to really promote that movie. I mean, that's that's just the reality. And, yeah. you know, it, it could be, you know, maybe it's it's not what we're hoping it is and what Netflix was hoping it is, but um, it does have a very, you know, tantalizing Venice premiere. And the fact is Bradley Cooper is choosing not to promote it right now in solidarity with uh, SAG. He is the lead of the movie. He is the director of the movie. And that really creates a vacuum uh, for actually getting people, you know, get, kind of creating a narrative around the movie, I think is the way to put it. Because with Oscar season, a lot of times, to an extent, the box office is fueled by reviews and, and reactions and sentiment. I think it's a little bit less dependent on it sometimes, uh, on, on the actual, like, say, Barbie-esque massive marketing uh, campaign and, and the, the memes that follow. Um, but in the case of a movie like Poor Things... That's another example of like, yeah, Yorgos will probably be able to do some press there. But, you know, it's from what I understand, it's 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 a weird movie. It's this is the guy who made The Lobster. I don't think this is going to be as straightforward as The Favorite. And you're going to need a star like Emma Stone to help get that across the finish line. And, mm-hmm. and there's going to be a lot of nervousness there around, you know, depending on when this ends, how it will impact the movie's chances. Because the way it's released is going to impact strength of the campaign you know these things are very related in the fall it is kind of interesting that i mean i'm hoping this doesn't happen but like after the andrea riceboro thing there was a lot of talk about like we need we need we need campaign finance reform (laughs) we we, we need (laughs) campaign reform and now we might be getting no campaigning (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know and we'll just see who wins based on the movies alone you know like we we talk about on this podcast a lot like maybe it's unfair to him but like eddie redmayne won that oscar by shaking a lot of hands kissing a lot of babies over the course of many months um, I would argue Michelle Yeoh and Ki Hui Kwan very recently did the exact same thing. Definitely not an yeah. uncommon thing. Who's yeah. a better campaigner than recent Little Gold Men guest Jessica Chastain? There you go. Exactly. <laughs> Truly no one. So if we're facing a potential, I mean, I'm, I'm, I think it's probably dim. I think this will be resolved before it really becomes, you know, dire. But like of like, OK, the movie just has to stand on its own and and without any sort of, you know, special screenings where people get to rub elbows with stars. Um, that would be an interesting kind of vacuum experience post Riceboro mm-hmm. and see how that works. But I don't think we'll get there. The dynamic. Yeah, that dynamic is very interesting to me. You know, Coda and Everything Everywhere. Um, you may love those movies and believe they were the best pictures of the year, but both of those movies won because of the way that Hollywood fell in love with those casts and the stories mm-hmm. behind those movies, like really clearly. And that's just a huge part of Oscar season (laughs) that uh, even if it gets a later start, I mean, when you're talking about everything everywhere, like that was a process that had already started by this point. Oh, yeah. You know, and Michelle Yeoh went to a lot of those fall festivals, even though the movie was a spring premiere. So it's already gets going. And every month you lose in that regard, I think does tilt the race a little bit relative to how it has evolved over the past few years, especially. I think we'll be talking for many months to come over how much of an advantage that gives Barbie and Oppenheimer, um, mm-hmm. because they had mm-hmm. those just incredible full court presses right before the strike began. Uh, you know, some people think not coincidentally, although I don't know how much they had the power. I think Fran Drescher has implied that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Some people. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, those the power of those two cast together, I mean, maybe more so for Barbie. Um, you know, I don't think they'll be the last people who get to campaign with their cast. I, I don't know what we're basing our optimism off of. Of, uh, because nobody really knows when this is going to end. Um, but yeah, those are going to loom large for a long time. I mean, have you ever been to Disney World or Disneyland right when it opens and they do the <laughs> thing called a rope drop and everyone like lines up and like races for Splash Mountain? It like I'm at, I'm, if the strike, let, let's say it lets up and like January 1st is or 2nd is like the first day that anyone can campaign. I'm just imagining like just every cast like racing towards screening rooms in L.A. to like do Q&A's or whatever. Everyone grab a buddy to do actors on actors. <laughs> yeah. Go. Yeah. Someone stumbles and they're like, leave them, leave them. Carrie Mulligan will find her way there. <laughs> 
I mean, we're also desperate for this, too. Like, it's easy to make fun of, like, everyone sitting on their hands in this. But, like, we're part of this process. We want this to end. We want to be able to, like, get the show on the road. We'll be waiting at Haunted Mansion with arms wide open saying, come, welcome. We don't talk about Haunted Mansion. <laughs> if, we can't do, if we can't do end up photographing a phase one cover of an actor, I think Richard described a great illustration for what it should be. <laughs> Everyone waiting. David, you're going to write this week about the Emmys and how they fit into this as well, which uh, is both not top of mind and top of mind because voting starts in mid-August. Um we are still interviewing below-the-line people, the people who are able to do interviews. Um, and the news broke last week that they will be delayed. We still don't know when, right? I was, I was slightly vacation brain. They've not confirmed exactly when, but most likely the beginning of next year, right? Yeah, I, I think at this point, the assumption is that it is January, and it's just a matter of both finding the date and figuring out when exactly to announce that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that that it is they have officially undated, and they are moving to a later date. Yeah. So the Emmys are in the state of kind of existing and not existing at the same time. And the weirdness of what that time is going to look like is is what you've been looking at, David. What, what feel like the real oddities here? Well, I think with the Emmys, they always come up a little bit against the inevitably glitzier, bigger Oscar season. You know, the Emmys usually, I think last year aired at the same time TIFF was going on. Yep. Uh, so I could not go to the show, for instance. Uh, and this year, if they run in January, I mean, the January awards show calendar is so stacked that you're going to have this show somewhere between the Critics' Choice Awards and the Golden Globe Awards, like probably at best at this point. Uh, and what that means is you're going to have Jeremy Allen White likely winning an Emmy for season one of The Bear at the same time that he wins a Golden Globe or and or a Critics' Choice Award for season two of The Bear. Mm-hmm. You're gonna have time episode, has no meaning. You're gonna have Paul Walter Hauser maybe winning an Emmy for Blackbird, which will have aired 18 months before the airing of that broadcast. And in general, you're gonna have I think a real problem with a broadcast like what's supposed to be TV's biggest night that is going to kind of feel like an afterthought compared to, I think, you know, lesser shows like the Globes and Critics' Choice Awards that are going to be presumably at the same time honoring what TV is in a much fresher and more current way. Um, And that's going to be, I think, a really difficult situation for the Emmys, which just generally have been in a tough spot this season with, with the strike and campaigns being put on hold. Uh, and it's going to be a really, what I would expect to be a muted finish for a weird, weird season. Is there any way around it? Do you see a better solution? Because I don't. Not really. <laughs> uh, there's the, I mean, certainly for the broadcast itself, there's probably the necessity of leaning into it and and kind of acknowledging it's weird and maybe a little bit ridiculous. But I do think the Academy made the right move by keeping the voting calendar the same because there's really no way to make it more fair by pushing it because there was some concern about, you know, a show like The Bear having aired and gotten gotten a little press out of that, uh, again, for a different season than what's eligible. But again, it's like those results are going to be sitting in a box for however many months. And sadly, that is the most, the fairest way of doing it. Um, I don't know that there is a way to better address that. Um, but it's just unlo- a bummer. But it's just a bummer. Yeah, I, I don't even know what you could say about that. Richard, do you think you're just going to feel insane time traveling between different award shows in January and never a moment that isn't on a red carpet? I mean, TV stuff is always weird anyway with that time travel thing, because it's like, if the Emmys are in are early next year, we're talking about some shows that will have aired 18 months prior right Mm -hmm. like that that's really nuts but um you know i like a crowded january sag whatever is left of the golden globes you know uh, critics awards all that stuff like it it adds so why not throw tv into the mix you know (laughs) more tv (laughs) i mean tv's already represented at sag at the globes i mean it feels a lot like that extended oscar season we had the covid year where you know it's april and we're sure well we were still talking about the awards chances of 
I don't know, what's a, what's a 2020 movie that came out earlier? I don't even remember. First Cow? No, it didn't happen. Well, yeah. Look, look, we were holding, we, we held that flame as long as we possibly could. Promising Young Woman's a good example. That... Oh, yeah, exactly. It had premiered at Sundance like well over a year before. Um, I don't like the COVID parallels, and I think it's inaccurate in a lot of ways. But, I mean, it does feel like as, as award season people, and granted, like our, our problems are not the priority of the rest of society. Like, we've just, we just went through this. We went through so much chaos. I was really... It feels like dealing with this extra level of chaos while award shows are still kind of in this nebulous position um, is, is rough. The other element of this presumed date for the Emmys that uh, I think will feel really weird is I, I think we can expect this to be the time that we really start to feel the impact on the schedule, on the amount of television that's out, because you're going to see networks holding more stuff. Production has slowed so considerably that a lot of execs have already talked about 2024 feeling kind of scary for how they're building their slates. Um, and I think the combination of a thinner January, uh, which seems inevitable regardless of when the strike resolves, um, just because of the amount of delays we've had and the <laughs> lateness of the show yeah. is just going to sort of speak to what a disruptive year it's been. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think we've really wrapped our head around, like, what 2024 will look like with just less stuff to watch. It's crazy to think that, like, Mike White, like, has, like, a final draft document open, and it says, Tanya's ghost enters, and that's all he he wrote before the strike (laughs) happened. And now it's just sitting there, you know? Like, there's so much stuff that takes, you know, the the, the writing was delayed first, and then obviously things that were shooting. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, I think we're not going to see that impact for a long time, and then it's all of a sudden going to be very, very apparent but even if the strike itself is over. Don't you imagine Mike White's brain, like that rope at Disneyland where all the ideas are just waiting to be able to go down in the <laughs> yeah. final draft document? Like yeah. that, that thing's written in his brain. You know it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think one good thing going back to the movies kind of pushing is that like that could help spread the wealth a little bit. Like the exhibitors are riding still pretty high on Barbie and Oppenheimer. You know, we'll see what the fall looks like when things aren't promoted and, you know, there isn't that engine behind things. But, like, if you push a Dune or whatever, like, maybe that helps, like, give them more ports to kind of connect to until things can come back um, in full. Yeah. I actually had a theory about Dune I meant to throw out when we were talking about release schedules earlier. So, you know, it hasn't been pushed on the release schedule. By the time you hear this, maybe it has. Um, But you've got, you know, in terms of the Oscar race, you've got Dune 2 kind of coming in, competing in a lot of the same crafts categories where Dune 1 won. How many Oscars was it? Four Oscars? A good number of Oscars. I think more. In 2021. (laughs) Um, But I think those are all Oscars. It won six Oscars. Um, I think those are all awards that Barbie and Oppenheimer are very likely to swoop in. Um, And, you know, Barbie being from the same studio as Warner Brothers. So I wonder if it's not just a financial thing, but like, you know what? We're not going to win score. We're not winning costumes this time. Let's wait. Let's give it another try. Mm -hmm. That's my theory. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, they, they, they have those bases pretty well covered if they, you know, if they view it that way, certainly. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, the New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for the New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So for now, we do have things to talk about that are out in theaters right now. And um, Richard, I wanted to hear from you on Heartstopper, which does seem kind of like the late summer cheerful thing that that people have been waiting for. You yeah. know, now that the, bar- the Barbie sugar high comes down and here comes something else to lift your spirits. Um, season two really lived up to the hype, huh? Yeah, I mean, that show kind of was one of those Netflix shows that 
it was not really promoted much for the first season. It just sort of organically found a very, very hearty, healthy fan base, um, you know, on its own, essentially. Um, and so obviously for season two, and this is a, a YA romance series based on a, ser- a web comic that turned into a graphic novel about two boys at a British high school falling in love and, and dealing with, um, you know, matters of the heart. Um, and uh, it, it really just, you know, captured the fancy of a lot of people. And so I think there was a lot of pressure on season two to continue this narrative of these two kids in love and their friends falling in love, um, but also resist any sort of sophomore alteration that would have been inspired by its success. You know, sometimes we see shows that become a little too self-aware of like tweets that if people have, you know, sent about their show or like kind of like the the digital suggestion boxes of the internet. Are we talking about Sherlock or is this a more updated uh, reference? I mean there I think there are myriad <laughs> examples of of this, you know, I I would I would I don't want to name anyone particularly, but and I think that Heartstopper avoids that. I think as it has source material to go off of, um it doesn't become I think there's a certain smugness in the show kind of in, built into it, but like it, it hasn't sort of gotten to its head, the success. So I, I appreciated that. And the performances are really lovely. Um, the two lead kids, uh, Joe Locke and Kit Connor, um, are just really great and natural. And, um, you know, they have really good chemistry. And yeah, I mean, you know, look, I'm 39, 39 plus one. Um, and uh, I, I'm not the target audience for this show, but I do think that, they also are aware that it, that some adults are watching it pretty ardently, and I think they let people of any age kind of into it without it feeling like, oh, I'm just being tortured by this like gay teen love affair that I never got to have myself. Hmm. I, I I've seen the season as well, uh, and I think it's just really well done. It, I didn't think it was going to be a show for me when I first started the first season, whenever it aired. Um, what is time? But <laughs> I did find I did find it. Yeah, moving and uh, I I am not yet thirty nine plus one, but even it feels to me even like quite removed from from my high school experience, and and that took some adjusting too, <laughs> and maybe it was actually more shocking. <laughs> I don't know, but it was just like, oh, is this is this what it is now? But it you know the the second season one thing that I I both appreciated about it and that I found at times a little bit frustrating was uh, there's a lot of sort of issue um driven storytelling like a lot of labels that the show seeks to explain um whether it's like under the lgbtqia plus umbrella or just other um things that teens go through that we have more language for now and i think the show both does a very good job of dramatizing each of these situations each of these identities and it can still at times feel like a bit much to me um Mm -hmm. But that may also just be the reaction of somebody who didn't have all these conversations when he was 16. I mean, I, I don't I, I think that that's probably something picked up by a lot of kids, too. You know, I think Heartstopper, in my imagination, like me and my dorky theater friends, if we're in high school now, are obsessed with it. And like the cool kids are like, oh, my God, those lamos are watching that show, you know, like <laughs> because it does have that sort of didactic quality to it, you know, yeah. of like here's the episode or the sort of through line about this issue, you know? And um, I mean, it's like the show is a conservative nightmare. I mean, it's everything they think like people under 40 in the city in, on the coast are like, you know, <laughs> like they only talk about identity. They only talk about this. It's all very self-reinforcing, you know, but I do think that, and maybe an American version of this show would be a lot worse at it. But I think, yes. I think that there, a certain British restraint does eventually kick in where they're, they're not going to, big and broad on the topicality. Um, it remains a story about specific characters for the most part. There is one plotline in this season that feels shoehorned in to sort of address one of the the letters in the alphabet in a way yeah. that um, felt a little bit like maybe it should have been given more careful consideration. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I, I know what you mean, David. And I, and I think that when I reviewed the show, people can read that now. Like I said, a certain smugness does creep in where there's a sort of moral superiority tone to it that um, I'm not saying that the villains in the show aren't actual villains, but like the, sometimes the way that those villains are sort of uh, encountered and and treated by our hero characters feels a bit smarmy or something. And uh, But, you know, maybe young people just kind of want that sort of righteous moment and and that's enough. 
Yeah. It articulates a very clear sense of right and wrong that, you know, I agree with where it falls, but it can be very direct. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, is there a queer romance that's maybe less didactic and less aimed toward young people that you want to recommend instead? Oh. Well, in addition, not instead. <laughs> Funny you should mention, Katie. Um, <laughs> yeah, Iris Axe's new film Passages is out in a limited release this week. Yeah, Passages premiered at Sundance. Uh, it got strong reviews there, but it wasn't one of the big like hit breakouts of the festival. But, uh, you know, Sachs is a filmmaker. He made uh, Love is Strange, uh, my number one movie of, of that year, 2014. Uh, he most recently had Frankie, I believe, was his last film. Mm-hmm. Um, so he has a fan base, but like, I hope that this one will expand that, you know. Um, it's a pretty risque love triangle story um, about a gay couple, and then they sort of are torn apart, and one of them ends up with a woman, and um, that's not really what it's about. About it's more of a character study. But anyway, unfortunately, the movie has been given an NC seventeen rating because of uh, a, a particularly graphic sex scene. I'm, I'm assuming that's why, and uh, that's a shame. I don't know that for a little art house movie that that really is like fatal in the way that it used to be when like Showgirls got an NC seventeen. It meant theaters wouldn't play it. I don't know that Passages, which was probably not going to be at your local multiplex, (laughs) I'm not sure if that really affects it. But it still is another sign in the long-going complaint about the MPAA that, um, you know, they have a certain anti-queer bias in the way they rate movies. He had a sort of outrageous similar scandal with Love is Strange when it was rated R yeah. for yeah. even with even less justification. That's I like would the most say. gentle movie of all time. <laughs> it's it was like staggering. Um yeah, I, I really love this movie, so I hope people see it. But I, I think Richard is right that I don't know that that rating will impact the audience necessarily. <laughs> but I will say, you know, uh, it's probably not uh, like a major Academy Awards-esque contender, but like Franz Rogowski, who plays the lead, he's this a film director who is a real narcissist. It's, you know, he is, it's a very kind of, neg- it's an anti-hero and then some, you know, he is a kind of yeah. loathsome character who is the center of the film, which I think some people at Sundance were a bit put off by, understandably, but I think it makes the movie that much more interesting. And Rogowski, who is an up-and-coming German actor, right? Is he German? Mm-hmm. German. He's one to watch, I would think, for Critics Awards and stuff like that. I know that fellow members of the New York Film Critics Circle have been raving about the movie and him in particular. So I think we'll probably be bringing his name up in some capacity um, at the end of this year or early next. Yeah, David, yeah. you talked to him because because you felt the exact same way, right? You can read a profile on VF.com. <laughs> uh, yes, he uh, he gave my favorite performance of the year and I, I loved him in this very, very different movie called Great Freedom, uh, where he plays a prisoner who is um, incarcerated for his sexuality. Um He's just, he has this quality that is completely unexpected. And I've seen him play very sympathetic characters. And in this one, he plays a, what the kids in Heartstopper might call a highly chaotic. Um, yeah, what would the kids in and, Heartstopper make of a uh, morally ambiguous character like this? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting. I was just thinking about it while Richard was talking because. What is he doing you know, to that man? <laughs> But even just in terms of labels, you know, I mean, the the plot of the movie concerns this man in a long-term relationship with another man, played by Ben Wishaw, and he's he, Rogowski plays a filmmaker, he wraps a film, and as the, the movie establishes, when he wraps a movie, he kind of goes into this state of chaos and of uh, wrecking some havoc, and he becomes, he finds himself very attracted to a woman, and pursues an affair with her, and... The movie allows that to just sit and really throw you into the perspective of this really intense attraction and this intense desire for something new and fresh um, and his sort of brazen pursuit of it at the expense of a relationship that does mean a great deal to him. And I, I just thought it was so spiky and unafraid of being uncomfortable and that includes Rogowski's performance that includes uh the sex scene that likely led to this rating and that just includes the characterization of all of these characters um because the word likability i don't think enters the sphere of this movie but the movie is so disinterested in it that uh, and i think it's really to its benefit yeah it's really sax you know pursuing something i mean he, it's always been in his films but frankie especially which was you know set in portugal and isabel who is the lead it's him further pursuing his sort of euro cinema interests and mm-hmm. this movie 
it should have been a can. I think um, it feels in in its bravery in being uh, about unlike an unlike, unlikable person in an unlikable situation. That's something I think that uh, European directors and directors around the world, not Americans, uh, are much more willing to do and explore. Um, and so it's interesting to see him kind of abandon some of the uh, forms of, of his country and uh, in pursuit of others. It does seem like this is getting more attention than Frankie did. Maybe not the same degree as Love is Strange, which is a really accessible movie. But like, do you feel like Iris Axe's breakthrough moment could still be coming? Or is, you know, he's going to make the movies for the people who love him and some new discoveries. But the like the Oscar moment may not necessarily be on the horizon. Yeah, I don't think so. I don't. I mean, and that's OK. Yeah, like, I think we, should, yeah, we can all embrace yeah. him being able to make these movies for, you know, the way they are. I would like him to be taken more seriously, even within the sort of, like, cinephile community in the U.S. Yeah. You know, I think mm-hmm. because he makes... Not all of his films are about gay relationships, but a lot of them are. And I think that has always, unfortunately, put him at something of a remove from other, you know, beloved American auteurs. So I would like to see that happen. And I think that, oddly enough, in its way, the NC-17 rating has gotten the film mm-hmm. more press than it otherwise might have gotten. Um, it's also, I think, slightly benefited by uh, there being a dearth of other things this month for people to talk about mm-hmm. and to go see if they don't want to see Barbie for the eighth time, you know? Um, and so, I don't know, I hope so, because Sachs is really, like, not just to, to be pretentious about it, but, like, an important American filmmaker. And um, mm-hmm. I hope, pretentious. you know, I hope that he gets this film and others to come, you know, earn him that regard. I think the movie is really well-timed for him uh, in a lot of ways. In, in addition to what you were talking about, Katie, you know, both Love is Strange and Little Men, which was, it probably is my favorite movie of his. It's a really beautiful, uh, understated coming-of-age film with these queer undertones that are never stated, but uh, they're very much there. They're, those are both quite gentle movies and, and accessible movies, I think, and, and, and played, I think, both debuted at Sundance and had a, you know, a decent art house right life. I think both got uh, multiple Spirit Award nominations. And then he did Frankie, which did go to Cannes. It was not well, rece- well received out of Cannes. And this feels like the movie where he would have made his Cannes mark, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but it reminded me a lot of uh, the movie he made before all those movies, which was Keep the Lights On, which I think was the film that put a lot of people onto him, which was a sexier darker uh, relationship study, uh, not unlike this one. But I think this is a more mature movie. It's it's a really fun movie, which it's funny, can yeah. get lost in the in the way it's talked about. Like, Rogowski and his character are, are very funny, and the way he behaves is at times kind of amusingly ridiculous. And I so I think that you are picking up on something, Katie, that there is... Maybe that moment coming for him in the way that it comes for a director who makes the movies that Iris X makes, which is um, they're never going to be huge, um, but they are often great. And they are they collectively represent uh, yeah, a really significant body of work. Well, people can see passages in limited release starting this week. And it may ex- I was just looking. It's not near me, which doesn't surprise me, but it may travel its way around uh, throughout the month. It sounds like. And then it'll be on movie. Because it's a yes. movie release, yeah. Yeah, movie makes those movies really accessible. They had decision to leave last year. So, um, you know, it's easier than ever to see this stuff, even if you're not near the good art houses that would show stuff like this. <laughs> and this is somehow not a movie ad. We are not sponsored. <laughs> <But> <laughs> they would like but you to. Know, you know where to find us if you yeah. want to. Ira may or may not be on Little Goldman next week, but we remain unsponsored. <laughs> I'm Nomi Fry, and this week on Critics at Large, we're talking about the delights and shortcomings of the new movie Challengers. It starred Zendaya at the center of a tennis triangle and a very steamy love triangle. Who are her loyalties to? Will she be tempted by the other one? How do these guys reckon their professional playing ambition with the romantic and sexual feelings about this mysterious woman? And such we have it. We have a conflict between three people in a game meant for two. Is it a sports movie or a sex movie? Find out on Critics at Large from The New Yorker. New episodes drop every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. 
So now it's time for the first installment of the Little Gold Men book club. Every August, we dive into some books that are on their way to becoming major fall movies. Um, I've been tweeting about the lineup, but I should just say it now for anyone who wants to read ahead. Um, We're doing Killers of the Flower Moon right now. Next week, we're doing Priscilla Presley's memoir, Elvis and Me. The week after that will be Martin Amos's The Zone of Interest, which uh, was adapted into a film that premiered at Cannes. And then we're wrapping up with Leave the World Behind by Rahman Alam. Um, There's fun reading ahead. So Killers of the Flower Moon kind of felt like an obvious place to start. I think it was on our book club lineup back in 2020, 2021, whenever this movie um, from Martin Scorsese was originally supposed to come out. Um, It's a book by David Grand that was published in 2017. He's a writer from The New Yorker. Um, He wrote the book The Lost City of I call it Z. I know it's Zed if you're English, Um, which I still haven't read, even though I love that movie. So I think that's next on my list. Um, But he kind of has this reputation for like extensively researched historical books that read like a thriller. And Killers of the Flower Moon very much plays out that way, where it kind of sets you up in the Osage Nation in Oklahoma in the 1920s, where there is this mysterious string of deaths. Um, And it kind of lays out the facts of the case before you meet the uh, FBI agent called Tom White, played in the movie by Jesse Plemons, um, and kind of reveals, quote-unquote, who the killer is. Although in the last third of the book, um, it kind of complicates that story a little bit in a really interesting way. I think we can we can talk about the movie. We've all seen it, um, but I don't want to get too much into it because it's not out for most people until October. Suffice it to say that the movie unfolds the story in a really different way. Um, but just to go back to the book itself and when it was published... All of the reviews kind of report it as this completely forgotten story, a chapter in American uh-huh. history, um, which it certainly was for me. Did it hit? I don't know if you read it in 2017 or were familiar with the story. Were we all as ignorant about this pretty exceptional, uh, horrifying string of crimes as I was? I mean, I was. Yeah, I was. Completely, I mean, yeah, I, I read it when it came out and I had no idea. <laughs> I, I think, you know, to my shame, like I think about watching Watchmen and being mm-hmm. like, finding out about the Tulsa massacre, you yeah. know, and and being exposed to both Killers of the Flower Moon, the book, and and the movie, uh, which I saw the movie first. Yeah, I mean, this is a really significant moment in terms of the discrete lives talked about in the book, but also just like what it tells us about our country and our history. And I think that a major difference between the film and the book is that the film is really much more focused on that and kind of on the villains. Whereas Grant's book is also about the sort of formation of the FBI. And I understand why they they um, got rid of that for the movie, because it would be too much story. But like it is all that's also a, a compelling history unto itself. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned Tulsa, Richard, and the movie incorporates the Tulsa massacre, which had happened a, f- a few years before the, you know, the FBI investigation of the Osage murders got underway. Um, it's not mentioned in the book, probably with good reason. But that brief moment in the movie really has that kind of electric shock moment of putting all these pieces Uh of American history together and knowing that they are not, uh, those incidents are not unrelated at all. Mm -hmm. And the book definitely, while not addressing it, um, and especially in that last third you're talking about, Katie, it has this really remarkable ability to tell a really contained, specific, harrowing story and give it that kind of inevitable context of how profound and, and lasting and representative of a situation it was for American history. Yeah. And I think that's where the FBI aspect of it is complicated in a way that it... So, you know, in the book, you kind of... You meet Tom White, who I think, from the way he's presented in the book and the movie, and from what we know, is like a pretty straightforward, like, Uh mostly working on the side of law and order person. But of course, he's working for J. Edgar Hoover, who we know a lot more about, and as the the history of the FBI uh, rolls on. in this case. Yeah. Really, really (laughs) tight with him. Although, at the end of his life, Hoover seemed to not have the time of day for him, which sounds about right. Um, Uh Hoover, obviously famously played by Leonardo DiCaprio, who's in Killers of the Flower Moon at all comes together. Um, but I think if you're if you're looking at kind of the rot of the American justice system, and this book really lays out why the officials in Oklahoma couldn't find the killers uh, behind this case because they were paid off or didn't care, um, I think the FBI becomes emblematic of that in a lot of ways over the course of its life. And I think if you're making a movie and you want to kind of get at the you know, the idea from the trailer, do you see the wolves in this picture of a room full of wealthy white people? Um, you can't allow the FBI to take up too much of the story. Um, but I think in a book, when you get more context of that, it can unfold in a different way. Yeah. And I think that one of the interesting things that in the book is that, like, the FBI, this was kind of their first real, the, the, these murders were their sort of first big 
investigation mm-hmm. in a way. Yeah. And but it wasn't done altruistically, really. You know, like it wasn't like J. Edgar Hoover was like so concerned about right, like about the, the their this plight. It was more he just wanted to like road test his new thing, right? He wanted to show off. Yeah. 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 Well, there's also a situation where they had I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to get the details right. There was a guy who had been in prison who they kind of sprung out as an informant. And then he like went on a killing spree or like landed back in jail somehow. And so in some way they were kind they were trying to cover up their own mistakes by getting this one right. right. So even at the very beginning, there was uh, some history of bad behavior. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. To your broader point, though, Katie, you know, the reason that we pushed this book club was because the movie got pushed because Martin Scorsese decided to retool it. Um, and specifically retool it by leaning more on the Osage perspective and that part of the story versus what we get in the book, which comes to be very driven by this investigation and by White, the uh, the investigator, who was played by Jesse Plemons in the movie. Who shows up um, maybe at, at hour two of the movie, like very late in the movie. Yeah. Probably a little after hour two, yeah. given that it's and three hours <laughs> and was very much the last act, and it is over three hours. And was once <laughs> described as the lead of the movie, I think, before Correct. they had adjusted things. Yeah, right, right, correct. So, so it is, it is, you know, relevant to the fact that we are talking about it when we're talking about it because the movie, I think, understood um, exactly what you're saying that there's not. There are many ways to tell this story. It's a really expansive, rich book with a lot of incredible detail. But, you know, you really risk sending the wrong message even implicitly if you don't get that focus right, which is remains debatable. I mean, it's not to say that the movie gets it perfectly, but I think that the intention was um, appropriate. Yeah, the the movie has it has the Osage as its focus, but then also kind of has the focus on the villains, um, which mm-hmm. I think... I, I think we can spoil the book, at least. I don't, again, I don't want to talk too much about the movie, but you've got... I was going to ask about this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I want to assume people have read the book. I don't want to talk as much about how the movie plays it out, but you've got Robert De Niro as William K. Hale, who you meet in the first part of this book as, like, he is the white pillar of society. He decides he describes himself as the friend to the Osage, and he turns out to have orchestrated a good number of these killings, although probably not all of them. Um, and one of his major accomplices is Ernest Burkhart, who's played by Leonardo DiCaprio, who was married to Molly Burkhart. Um, and uh, her three sisters and her mother all die under pretty mysterious circumstances before she herself becomes poisoned. Um, and they're at the center of the story as well. And I think that you're right that that, you know, whether or not that's the right perspective can be debatable. But I think it puts that question of greed and the thing that was really motivating this and like the wider rot of society and all these white people saying, oh, my God, these Osage have too much money. We have to do something about it. Like that's something a reporter literally wrote. The Osage are getting so rich. Something is going to have to be done. And it lays that. I don't think the book hides that. I think it tells that story with that point of view. But I think centering um the De Niro and DiCaprio characters makes that blatant in a way that um, that tells a pretty interesting story. Yeah, I found it to be a very haunting choice. Um, but in the movie, you know, the, the big difference is without spoiling. It's not a spoiler to say that, you know, that these are the bad guys yeah. from the beginning in the movie, whereas in the book, you know, through David Grand's reporting and his his telling of this sort of story, you're you're learning who the bad guys are more gradually. And there there are there's a you know, a reveal in the courtroom and it's like a whole thing and, and you're kind of right along with it. And I, the choice is interesting because, you know, I, I love the book and I, I really do love the movie. I think I'm among the biggest champions of the movie actually. Um, and I just found that choice to be incredibly effectively haunting that these men, they're kind of inescapable, even as you do spend a lot of time with Molly, who's played by Lily Gladstone, that insidious quality is really tough. I found it very difficult to shake, whereas the book is not. It doesn't take that approach, nor should it necessarily, but it's just a different experience. I yeah. think there are interesting parallels with this book and and The Lost City of, of Z, you know, where um, I love that movie. James Gray's film is beautiful mm-hmm. and, and, and distills part of the book uh, into something pretty profound. But Grant's book, because it, like Flower Moon, is this big, expansive bit of historical reporting – gives you the broader picture of the waste laid by these, you know, so-called gentleman explorers, you know, in the Amazon. And 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 basically what sort of spun out from that, you know, 
rubber plantations and whatnot. Um, and I think that he, that Grand, you know, does a similar thing with this. And I think that it makes sense for him to sort of save the pullback to the bigger picture for later because, um, you know, he's telling an, an, a, a, there's an arc even to his nonfiction story. I'm interested in you having seen the movie before reading the book, Richard, because I had mm-hmm. read this book a couple years ago and then reread it for this conversation. Um, because even when you're reading the book and you can flip back, there's a lot of names and a lot of people and kind of some like and a lot of like Osage who are murdered then a lot of like no good, you know, cow wrestlers who get in the picture. And it's not easy to keep track. And I don't know that it's not easy to keep track in the movie either. And I'm wondering how those pieces fell in place for you. I, I would say in this instance, I'm glad I hadn't read the book first because, you know, my primary job in seeing that movie was to see it with fresh eyes and kind of assess it as a standalone thing. Um, But now, after the fact, I'm eager to see the movie again, because I know so much more of the texture and the connectivity of everything, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, because I think what Scorsese had to do, and it's judiciously done, you know, is give us kind of the impressionistic version of it. And we see bloody horrible things happen up close he's not vague or coy about that but like we don't get the the sort of expansiveness literally but we feel it you know Mm -hmm. so i i think that people listening to this who haven't read the book like choose which one you want to do first but i think had i read the book first there's a a a chance i would have been like oh but they left that out and they didn't put that in and that's you know and i i think sometimes at least for my job that's not the most productive way to watch a movie yeah yeah even with the backstory, like uh, in the movie, you'll have Molly going to see somebody and you'll understand there's some, you know, overseeing of her affairs, of her money. And you might ask why this is happening. And the book has a very detailed accounting of what this process was of, of guardianship uh, and the Osage Nation and how this came to be. And, exactly and fear, how, how incredibly infuriating it is. <laughs> I think on the second reading, I really grasp how awful it was. Yeah, and I think in a way it was it was it was fun to not fun. It was <laughs> it was um interesting to go back to the book after the movie and to have that visualization of that experience of of exactly what that looked like and what that process was. And obviously it's it's, it's a film, it's a work of fiction, but um there's still this incredible um personal quality to it that I I thought that the book's context really gave extra weight to. Um, but you you have that. You have this whole um, understanding of exactly where we are in Oklahoma, why we are there, why there is interest in it, when this discovery of the fact that they are, you know, living on wealth, on oil is made. And, and all of these elements that I think work really well in the book as, as establishing points uh, to then inform the drama – in the movie, it's not spelled out that way, and it shouldn't be. But And I, I think, not that I forgot it, but certainly because it had been a few years since I'd read the book, it was an interesting experience to have those reminders come back to you like, oh, that's right. that This is a dynamic of living in this time for an Osage person that if you read the book and then watch the movie more directly, you'll have a very clear understanding of those scenes. Yeah. The book kind of takes this essential mystery that's unanswerable and, and Grant acknowledges it's unanswerable, which is how did Ernest Burkhart conspire against his own family, effectively? Like, he is mentioned early in the book as, you know, quoted by someone who is unusually devoted to his Indian wife and child, mm-hmm. as if, like, a man loving his wife and children was something that they could understand. But based on how venal most white people were at this point, it seems like it was surprising. Um, and the movie can extrapolate and imagine uh, this romance between Ernest and Molly, and it takes it as a really on-its-face romance, despite mm-hmm. what happens later in it. And that's such an interesting thing that a fictional movie can do, the nonfiction book can't. Um, but it was interesting interesting to kind of read that between the lines of the book. Um, because even though I've seen the movie and read the book, I still don't know that I understand why this guy made the choices he did. Um, and that's a really interesting thing to sit with as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've, I've seen um, somewhere some comparison that called the movie Scorsese's Iraq War movie. You know, Whoa. just oil and murder and and U.S. government and, you know, all, all that stuff. And, and I think that that you know, at mm. the heart of the story and the mystery of Burkhart is like, maybe the answer is just like, well, greed is a motherfucker. And <laughs> he does say, I love money out loud yeah, a couple times yeah, in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, um, and I think that, that it's, it's not even sort of a, a sort of sequential thing of like, 
this happened and then this happened it's happening kind of at the same time like he's care he loves her but he also is doing this or conspiring in this stuff and 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 getting to the heart of that is in essence speaking of being pretentious to sort of get at the madness at the heart of this country you know and Uh and um i i think that gran is so good at finding a specific story and letting its broader implications um kind of ring loudly for themselves yeah, that rod at the beginning at the beginning of the country made me think of that. Um, it opens, or at some point, it talks about Thomas Jefferson meeting with representatives from the Osage in you know, eighteen oh four and saying like, "You will only know the American government as a friend." And then ten years later, he's like, "Actually, you have to leave and go somewhere else." Like that yeah. kind of paternalistic approach toward Native Americans and you know treating them as if you're doing what's right for them while destroying them um, is something very much rooted in and and, and venerating the culture while destroying it. Yes. You know? Yeah. And and that's mm-hmm. something we still do, you know. Um, and uh, yeah, it's an old, old, old practice, sadly. Yeah, very much so. It's a really good book. I, re- I you know, and I, I feel like the ideal way to read it is to read it and then three years later see the movie, which is what I did, and then go back and reread it. <laughs> yes. So if you can get in a yeah. time machine. Um, but I think there's not really a wrong order to do it in, as I, as I think we've come to from the different ways we've approached it. I loved the photographs too, and that those really stuck out to me on the second read. Yeah. Um, having gotten a, an interpretation on in a movie, um, but just the parallels of that, uh, of, of the text and the images and, and being, it was just very transporting. And it's, it, it gives a face to a really unimaginable and yet very imaginable tragedy. Yeah, I was going to say on um, in 2017, David Grant did a story for Atlas Obscura, I guess when the book came out with kind of high res digital versions of a lot of these photos, like my paperback copy mm-hmm. of the book, they, they were kind of grainy. So if you Google... Atlas Obscura, David Grant, you'll find them. Um, like, there's pictures of the Million Dollar Elm, and there's more pictures of Molly and her sisters, where you can really see their, you know, their eyes. It, there's really good stuff in there. Well, the book Killers of the Flower Moon is available uh, anywhere, uh, although it is very much on hold at my local library, so you might have to buy a copy, which is what I did. Um, and the movie will be out via Apple in October. So read it and go see it. And again, next week, join us for another book club installment on Elvis and Me by Priscilla Presley. That does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week. Find us in the meantime at VanityFair.com, on Twitter and Instagram at VF Awards Insider, and on our own, I'm at Katie Rich, Ann Richard, Rylos, and David. David Canfield, 97. Our editor and producer is Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best description of our ideal location for a Little Gold Men live show goes to Richard Lawson. We'll be waiting at Haunted Mansion with arms wide open saying, come. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. From PRX.